Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 256. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. And today, Kathleen, we agreed to discuss a New Yorker article written by Helen Rosner and published on June 8th, 2018, entitled Anthony Bourdain and the Power of Telling the Truth. And this was written very shortly after Mr. Bourdain's suicide. It's worth also letting the audience know that I'm not particularly familiar with his work. I know, of course, who he is, but I came into this article with relatively minimal knowledge. And as a jumping-off point, I'd like to read Rosner's first sentence in the article, because I think her word choice, especially in the final clause, is particularly evocative and, I think, really thought-provoking. Quote, I have long maintained a theory that Anthony Bourdain, who died on Friday at the age of 61 of an apparent suicide, was the best-known celebrity in America. Now, Kathleen, what I think is really interesting about this, as Rosner goes on to say, is that you can come up with all sorts of quantitative or other metrics of how popular or how engaged a celebrity is with their fans, followers, etc., but Rosner remarks that Bourdain's fame didn't feel distant or, quote, lacquered up, and instead that he felt very real, very present, and she uses familial terms like your brother, your rad uncle, or your impossibly cool dad. Now, what I find really fascinating about the phrase best-known celebrity is that it does, to an extent, feel oxymoronic. I think celebrities are, at least in our culture here in the West, in America, individuals that we've often put upon pedestals, whether they were initially seeking that fame or not, and I think we do distance ourselves from them in a sort of cultural relay race. We hope that they will achieve great things and run great distances as vanguards of humanity, in my opinion, that their beauty to an extent is our beauty. I think that's why we sometimes buy the products, the services that celebrities endorse because of what they represent to us. And it's curious because we often put them there. They cultivate fandoms and followings, and I do believe that that occurs because of traits, skills, or qualities that these celebrities possess, but we want them to have large audiences. And so to describe someone as the best known is just really evocative for me. Does it mean well-known? Does it mean that they have the fewest secrets or they are the most open? Rosner goes on to say in the article that Bourdain was actually pretty self-conscious and uncomfortable when aspects of his private life were made public. So as minute as it might seem, characteristic of me, I think, Kathleen, I'd love to know what you think of this phrase and this idea of the best-known celebrity. Like you, I'm not that familiar with Anthony Bourdain's work. I've only watched a couple episodes of his shows here and there, and read a couple articles. Aside from that, I don't have much to go off of. So when I was reading this article, I spent a lot of time trying to understand it in the context that it's framed, as Anthony Bourdain being a truth-teller, and why it is that he's able to do that, to have that position. And I think that a lot of my realizations relating to his ability to be a truth-teller also point us to why he might be described as a best-known celebrity. The conclusions that I ultimately came to are that a celebrity chef is different from a celebrity. And beyond that, as the article points out, Anthony Bourdain is not just a celebrity chef. He's more of a cook. And this is reflected in the style and content of his show. There are lots of TV shows out there, especially about chefs, that are based on competition. 
shows like Chopped or Iron Chef. And then on the other side, you have shows where a chef stands behind a table and teaches you how to do something. And there is yet another category of shows that focus on the finest cuisine, the most luxurious or expensive kinds of food. And in each of these categories, I find that much of what defines them is boundary setting. That's something that is inherent in food. Food in many ways brings us together as we gather around a table, but simultaneously is oftentimes used as a way to exclude others, to define us against them. And I think that's something that is reflected even physically in some cooking shows that we see. Not only is there the boundary of the television that we're watching through, but also the counter that they stand behind. Anthony Bourdain's style is so completely different because he is interested in the meal as a social experience and goes so far as to try and make it a shared experience for us as well. We feel like we're sitting around that table with him and the reason that we relate to him as a brother, uncle, or father. This is a different way of getting to know a celebrity and fundamentally different from the talk show, where we get little insights into who a celebrity might be. Anthony Bourdain, despite being shy and not forthcoming about his personal life, as the article states, nonetheless invites us into an intimacy with him. There are a number of things that you said that I really appreciate, one of which I actually think I approach from a very different angle. I was thinking about the relationship between food and truth, and I definitely think coming from a privileged position of having been able to afford most food I've ever come across and having been exposed to a lot of different types of food, I see it, like the access to truth, as something somewhat universal. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not oblivious to how expensive caviar and other meals are, but I think in my interpretation, anyone can eat those things. Yes, I'm aware of allergies and dietary restrictions, but there is a certain universality to the fact that we all need food, and if one is able to afford it, which is certainly an economic and sociocultural issue, one can eat the food that others eat. And there isn't much to distinguish between royalty, leadership, celebrities, etc., and people who are of lower economic means. But you make a very good point that inclusion and exclusion are two different sides of the same coin, and I shouldn't be fooling myself that it's so universal. But I also really appreciate your emphasis on the cook-celebrity-chef dichotomy. Again, tying it back to truth, to me a celebrity chef is someone who is particularly polished and has an aura, a persona, an atmosphere they're trying to cultivate. I'm again not naive enough to believe that Bourdain was immune to this, but I am willing to believe that he may have been more authentic, more open, etc. with people when he was on camera. Though I'm absolutely aware that in any recorded situation, as you and I are evidence of, people do change aspects of who they are because they know a record is being created. But as that relates to cook versus celebrity chef, I perceive Bourdain, through the lens of this article, as a cook and therefore as someone seeking truth, as someone exploring the topic and trying to figure out what is true and how can I discern it from what's not. I think in shows like Parts Unknown and other culinary explorations of his, he may have been highlighting certain cuisine and sharing it, but it was in pursuit of something else, whether that's human nature or, as you said, the social experience of eating with others. I think that's key. And to me, the idea of a chef is someone who claims to have found a truth and is dispensing it for others, maybe even reproducing it or charging a fee for access to it. 
I'm in no way denying the economic reality of Bourdain and his celebrity, but I do think, at least again as this article describes, there is a line that he was cognizant of straddling, and I think that's what made him feel particularly approachable and maybe even relatable in some ways as we use terms like brother, father, or uncle. Now, the last thing that you said that really resonates with me is this idea of a familial and social experience surrounding food. Because I do think that when we're consuming food, we're in somewhat primitive states. Our guards are down, and in an evolutionary sense, we've either hunted or gathered whatever food this is. So eating is somewhat victorious and somewhat more relaxed to an extent. And even if Bourdain was putting on a character while eating, I think that's why people feel potentially more trusting of him. Because we all, to the extent we have access to it, are eating food daily. And that's really one of the few things that any of us do have in common with one another. And I think that that makes him more believable as a truth teller. Even if he was purveying lies, because of that shared humanity, those who provide food provide life and care and survival, and often companionship, amongst other things. When we think back to our earliest days as infants, those who often provided us food were caretakers for many of us parents, guardians, loved ones. And while Bourdain may have been providing images and narratives surrounding food, I think for a lot of people, that analog is still really powerful. And I also think you could contrast this with a banker, who also provides a service to society, but is dealing with something that's more abstract and artificial, that being the creation of money. We all use that too, but it's not as primitive as this idea of eating and consuming food, which I think explains relative distrust that many of us have in bankers, though I think that's a bit more complicated than I've gotten into here. But I also think this relationship to food illuminates why we have such regard for those who do deal with our food. And I think as we've societally become more disconnected from food, whether it's fast food that we've ordered very quickly or pre-made meals that we've purchased because of our busy lives, I think that anyone who can bring us back not only to the process of creating and enjoying and sharing food, but the truth and dialogue surrounding the consumption of food is someone we're likely to appreciate. And those are the things that I see in Bourdain in this article and in his career. So much of what you've said has resonated with me and were thoughts that I had as well while reading this article. And I particularly appreciate your closing sentiments and that you remind us of the dialogue surrounding food, because that is what I found to be the most compelling aspect of Anthony Bourdain's ability to be a truth teller. There are lots of truth tellers in our society. One that comes to my mind in particular are our journalists and our lawyers, but their truth telling is so different, particularly because. They seek to name the truth, acting as whistleblowers, calling people out and making the grand reveal, but it ends there. They might offer some solutions, but at the end of the article or the trial, they speak the truth and then go back to their lives. The whole premise of Anthony Bourdain's form of truth-telling was that you tell the truth and then you sit with it, you eat with it. And in this way, I find a really beautiful parallel between what he's doing and what he's saying. Eating things that, particularly to us in the West, seem to be foods that are unusual and maybe even a little gross, things that we don't find to be palatable. And then, on the other hand, 
making us reckon with those aspects of our humanity and of our societies that aren't palatable either, and somehow we have to swallow both of them and talk to the person across the table from us. And I'm reminded in particular of what Rosner cites as one of Bourdain's most famous episodes, his meal with President Obama in Vietnam, which ended with a quote commenting on the conflict, particularly America's racist dehumanization of that culture, as Rosner states. And with terms like dehumanization, it's my perception that a big component in the story of the 21st century is a form of rehumanization, if you will. Not restoring people who weren't previously human, but adding their narratives to a canon of human history that has been far from inclusive or compassionate. And I think that this act of, again, I'm going to use the word rehumanization, can be at least in part accomplished by what makes us similar. I see in our society abundant divisions, and I think that I understand some of the instincts behind them because we're drawn to people who are like us. But what I think is valuable in my perception of Bourdain's work, and I trust that it's the case, is that when we try to see other people as human for what they do, eat, think, or feel, we are more likely to draw connections between who they are and who we are. Rosner recalls a previous conversation she once had with him in which she asked if he was a feminist, and she said that his answer was, quote, long and circuitous, what I'd come to think of as classic Bourdain, more of a story than a statement, eminently quotable, never quite landing on the reveal, end quote. And what I find powerful in that is this remark that something is more of a story than a statement. I think often we look for these discrete or binary or reductive ideas or terms or thoughts. We want to know which politicians we can trust, which movies are good and bad, what foods or destinations we should consider for our travels, who to befriend, what to watch online, etc. And these aren't always nuanced things. What I value about food, just as I would value a story, is that there is nuance and subjectivity. Different people are going to interpret things differently. And I really love, Kathleen, your remark that journalists name the truth, because in my mind, someone in the culinary profession could also do that, but I would use verbs like find, enjoy, consume, or even create the truth. Share is another one that comes to my mind. And in your point that foods can be unpalatable or unusual to some of us, the act of showing that other people have consumed and enjoyed this for centuries or millennia is a valuable bridge to draw. I think we often get so wrapped up in our own definitions of humanity that we forget that other people who are just as human thousands of miles away, are doing it, the act of being human, very differently, but in no less real a way than we are. I think that's part of the beauty of Bourdain's work. And Kathleen, should you have any thoughts on that, I would welcome them. But I'd also love to know, as we aren't the only two people who knew of or barely knew of Anthony Bourdain before his untimely passing, what are some thoughts you'd like the audience to consider after listening to this discussion? I hope that after hearing our conversation, that our listeners will consider the different ways of telling the truth and who we leave the job of telling the truth to in our society. But beyond that, because this is something I've been thinking about throughout our conversation and reading this article by Rosner, is the question of what meal shows or creates the truth for you. Maybe it was the instance of that meal, who was sitting around the table with you, or maybe it's the meal itself and something that, because of that, we can recreate. 
And I would really encourage the audience to find the story behind a meal that you have this week or one that you often have. Do you know where the ingredients come from? Do you know the people who prepared it at all? There are a lot of elements to food that, frankly, I think I'm often ignorant to and I do think would change my and potentially your experience of it. So I'd love to hear what culinary adventures folks might have. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are two voices, and we all experience food in one way or another, so we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. Go in peace and conversation.